Welcome to Energy Currents in Search of a Net Zero System. I'm your host, Zhao Ang. In this episode, I have a guest from the uh, United States, the well-known author and environmentalist, Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben is a founder of Third Act. It's a new adventure for him, which organized people over the age of 60. Uh, I mean, I think most people over 60 in America are the boomers, right? And to work on climate and racial justice. He founded the first global grassroots climate campaign, uh, 650.org. Uh, many people know about that. And it serves as the human distinguished scholar in residence at a Middlebury College in Vermont. It's a liberal arts mid, uh, college in the uh, state of Vermont. In 2014, he was awarded the Right Livelihood Prize, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel in the Swedish parliament. He also win, uh, won the Gandhi Peace Award and honorary degrees from a variety of colleges and universities. Bill McKibben is a fellow of the American Academy of the Arts and the Sciences. He has written over a dozen books about the environment, including his first one, The End of Nature, published in 1989, a long time ago. Bill has a new book just published, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. A Greying American Looks Back at His Suburban Boyhood and Wonders What the Hell Happened. It's a really long title. It's so great to see you again. Friend, it is very good to catch up with you again. It's been a long time for us, but it's uh, you've done some remarkable things since, and it's really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you again for um, coming on the podcast. And firstly, I want to ask you to give us a very quick summary about your new book, because writing a book is your profession and your uh, very focus. <laughs> I really want to know uh, some important information about this new book. Well, the new book is as close as I will ever come to writing a memoir. It's really about the decade of the 1970s in America when I was growing up. And I was growing up in the suburbs of America at the time when they were becoming the dominant force uh, in America, where most people were suddenly living, and where, in certain ways, they were becoming a dominant force on planet Earth, because this is where, among other things, uh, the very high consumption lifestyle, uh, the very uh, automobile-centered lifestyle, where all of that really came from originally. And of course, it's that lifestyle, now copied by much of the rest of the world, that has poured carbon into the atmosphere and raised our temperature and things. So in certain ways, I was going back towards the beginning of, um, of this crisis that now threatens to overwhelm the world, and sort of wondering how we got into it. And what kind of debt we owe the rest of the world, those of us who were there in that world at the start, and what kind of clues it can give us about what to do and what not to do going forward. Yeah, it sounds very uh, relevant with your personal uh, history. You mentioned uh, your boyhood in um, Massachusetts, and uh, you try to use a different view and a pers different perspective uh, looking back to that period uh, history to understand what happened in suburbanization of the U.S. Um, might play a big role in 
the um, upcoming globalization joined by uh, one of the major players on the current uh, world uh, stage, China, uh, to really have a significant or determinant impact on uh, global warming or climate change. So I think uh, I had the chance to listen to this audiobook. Uh, I live in an area with a very good public uh, library system. Um, so I, I borrowed this audiobook and listened to parts of the book. But to be honest, I think uh, it's a very uh, sophisticated uh, description about your uh, young boyhood history, but also your reflection on American uh, social, political, economic, uh, even religious life. So it's not really directly related to climate change, but I think it's a good point, a good start to kick off our discussion. So my question uh, might be uh, like this, uh, in this book, you provide a quite first-hand experience to reflect American contemporary history from, as I mentioned, the politics, uh, religious life, and the social economic life. It's quite a big take, uh, ambitious uh, entrepreneurship. You mentioned hyper-individualism. It's one of the key words in this book. As hyper-individualist nation as the U.S., how useful is this conception or term uh, for us to understand the nature or the feature and the changes of American climate uh, policy? Because in last year, American uh, passed the Bipartisan uh, Act, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is regarded as uh, the most ambitious climate law in modern U.S. history. And uh, we have been waiting for that for so long. But it's not so so delayed because compared to the U European climate law, it was only one or two years uh, delayed. So uh, may, may I ask you to use this uh, specific term, hyper-individualism, to help us understand uh, the nature, feature, and the changes of American climate policy? I know this is a big question, but you, you, you can, you can uh, uh, address this in different layers. Well, let's talk about one of the events, the event that sort of comes at the end of this book, which was the 1980 presidential election between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. And, you know, Mr. Carter is in the news right now um, at the end of his life, and it's been a remarkable life. But that election was probably, I think, certainly the most important election of my lifetime because in it, America made a very profound and I think incorrect choice. America, since the depression years of the 1930s and through the war years of World War II and through the prosperity that came afterwards and the, uh, the turmoil, but also the accomplishments of the 1960s, landing a man on the moon, desegregating our school systems, things like that. America had been involved in a big group project of trying to make the country a better place. Now, it was a very messy group project because America is a democracy. Uh, it doesn't have, you know, one supreme leader who tells everybody what to do. So, but, but that's what was going on um, at its root. And that process came to an end in 1980. Ronald Reagan was elected on the declaration, on the insistence that we should not think of ourselves as a 
group, as a society. Instead, we should think of ourselves as a collection of individuals and ask what, what would be good for each one of us as individuals and that taken together, that would be the best way forward. He believed that markets solve all problems. It was Ronald Reagan's great friend, Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister of Britain in this same period, who said, there is no such thing as a society. There are only individual men and women. And that understanding of the world has dominated American political life for the 40 years since Ronald Reagan's election. It's why we stopped having effective environmental regulation. Why would you need it if markets were going to solve all problems? Uh, it's why we allowed rampant inequality to take hold in our country, such as the point now where the five or six richest people in America have more money than the bottom half of the whole population. Why wouldn't we? Because, and it was these attitudes, truthfully, that uh, lots of other places began to copy around the world. Uh, it was long before uh, China was telling its citizens that it was glorious to be rich and so on. And I think that when we come to climate change, this explains the extraordinary trouble that we've had in taking seriously the clear warnings that scientists have given us. Uh, remember, 35 years ago, scientists told us exactly what was going to happen as the planet warmed and what we needed to do to prevent it from happening. We needed to stop burning fossil fuel and substitute renewable energy. Something that, in fact, Jimmy Carter had tried to do long before we even knew about climate change. In the 1970s, Jimmy Carter had proposed spending money so that America would get a fifth of its power from solar energy by the year 2000. And if we'd done that, if we'd gone through with that group project, as it were, uh, we would be in a very different place than we are now uh, in trying to deal with climate change. Instead, we just took the cheapest way forward, started drilling lots more oil wells, uh, driving ever bigger cars. And before long, you know, the world has emitted more carbon dioxide in the years since I wrote that book in 1989 than in all of human history before it. China's now surpassed the US as the biggest CO2 producer, though in per capita terms, America remains the champion. And so we're, you know, in a very, very dangerous place. To give great credit to Joe Biden, he's trying to go back, I think, to that idea of America as a group project. And the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other work that he's done is a attempt to use the federal government uh, to really change the conditions of life in the U.S. to do industrial policy, uh, to help return manufacturing to the U.S., to change our energy systems and so on. And of course, it's being opposed at every turn by the same coalition of people who elected and backed Ronald Reagan 40 years ago. Um, and we don't know who will prevail in this fight in the U.S., and we don't know how it will play out in other places around the world. But I think we need to give Joe Biden 
extraordinary credit uh, for uh, trying to uh, reorient America in profound ways. Great. I, I remember you just mentioned about uh, as, democratic, as democratic as U.S. the country uh, is not like a supreme leader can uh, make a right decision and the whole society can follow him or her to really make uh, as fast as possible progresses. It's not the case in the U.S. Democracy is sometimes very chaotic. Um, but what I want to ask, as you mentioned, the country came a long way from early 1980s, uh, deregulation, a new, new uh, liberal, um, the, the, the Sacha and the Reagan economics uh, transformed the whole world to a large extent. But after 40 years, uh, by 2020, when Biden was elected as an American uh, U.S. president, uh, the trend of the policy in the U.S. has kind of big potential to change. Uh, one of the indicators uh, is about the passing of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so regarding addressing climate change, sometimes we really think it's running out of time. <laughs> we, as uh, environmentalists, really want to have some strong leadership to lead the whole society, make quick as possible actions. But it's, it's hard to think about that scenario in the U.S. and in Europe. Maybe in China, we might have some, but we will discuss later. But in a democratic system, it's always make people um, unhappy or not satisfied. But, you know, U.S. is a country maybe uh, in the world, the most hyper-individualist nation. Uh, it's a long tradition and a history for the country to become uh, like today. So how do you see... Uh, in the past 40 years, even the country become more focusing on the individual uh, needs and the more individualist, but still have a potential to have a turnaround to select a, a different uh, president and to pass a bipartisan act to, to really give a surprise to the world. Well, I mean, you have to, part of this new book of mine is a, uh, reminder of why there are wonderful things in the American story. I mean, the town that I was describing where I grew up was the place where the first battle of the American Revolution took place and where people uh, rose up for the idea that they should be allowed to choose their own leaders, determine their own policies, and so on. And that was an extraordinary moment in human history. Uh, you know, because for most of human history, we've been ruled by kings and tyrants and whatever. And China still is, you know, disagree with the president in China, then you're likely to get tossed in jail and stay there for a long time. And among other things, that leads to, uh, makes it very hard to correct mistakes, uh, you know, because you don't get... <laughs> don't get much new information in the system if everybody's afraid of being tossed in jail all the time, you know? All so right. America's great genius, and some of it still survives, is this, uh, well, is the sense of individual liberty. Uh, but that uh, the point I was trying to make is that that works best 
when it's coupled with a um, sense of responsibility to those around you, to the nation as a whole, to your community, instead of just being about yourself. And that's the trap that America fell into. So, you know, a, a, a good example is uh, comes in the use of transportation. For many people in America, the living in much of America, the most sensible way of getting around uh, for a very long time was public transit and trains and uh, trolley cars and things. A hundred years ago in America, you could go from the eastern, from the coast, the Atlantic coast, New York City, you could go all the way to Detroit or Chicago, just switching from one streetcar line to another because there was so much public transportation. But then the automobile took over and with it very powerful forces that uh, led to the destruction of all that public transit and the replacement with cars. And then the cars got bigger and bigger and bigger, far bigger than any human would really ever need. Uh, and before we got to the end of it, you know, we had extraordinary amounts of carbon pouring into the atmosphere. You know, the carbon from when I got my uh, learner's permit to drive at the age of 15 in Massachusetts, that carbon's still up there in the atmosphere, trapping heat. And so now we're trying to figure out what we do about this. And part of the answer is electric cars to replace uh, internal combustion engine. But part of the answer also should be building good public transportation uh, so that we don't need so many cars. You know, those of us who've been privileged to go to Europe or to China know what a good train system looks like now. Uh, and the U.S. doesn't have one. Um, and, and that's a kind of perfect example of what happens when you become too focused on individual advancement and stop thinking about the community where you live. Yeah, this, I think this is an interesting example to uh, explore in further. You know, uh, in the past 10 years, China has been a leader in the electric vehicle manufacturing around the world. But in the past three years, uh, even during the pandemic, the Europe uh, manufacturers, the mainstream car manufacturers, they catch up. Uh, they mm -hmm. want to fulfill their responsibility to address climate change, to uh, meet the uh, government's targets of the carbon emission reduction in the transport sector. So they uh, really um, produce more and more electric vehicles. And the same as uh, Japan and also the U.S., so I know, uh, and also, also, uh, and also, Korea. I drive a Kia uh, EV. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're coming from all over now. Yeah, because as you mentioned about the the nineteen uh, sixty and seventies, the suburbanization in the U.S. that was a structural uh, transformation, mm -hmm. uh, really changing people's life life uh, uh, mm -hmm. around the country, and the 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 mobility as a way of life. Uh, it's also very different in U.S. and uh, in, yes. in Europe. It's hard for U.S. to follow U.S. Uh, Europe example and the China yes. example because it's not as populous as China and the Europe. But do you think uh, transforming the road transport, uh, replacing the internal combustion engines with 
electric, even hydrogen-powered cars uh, is an alternative or it's a right way to follow in the U.S.? Yes, I, I think it's we, we have to do a lot of it, but I think we should be trying to also get away from as much dependence on the automobile as we have. You'll remember, I mean, you know, I've been to China a number of times, so I've gotten to see it switch, uh, you know, from a place whose urban areas were largely bicycle powered uh, to ones that were largely automobile powered. And I think that that was a big mistake for China. Uh, now the most advanced cities in the world, the European cities are, you know, the ones with the most bicycles and the most bike paths and the, you know, all of that. And I, I think that actually, I, my guess is that China will start switching back. And I think that I see the numbers for, I, I think the key technology for China and maybe for parts of the United States is going to be not the electric car, but the electric bicycle. And that that, you know, is a different uh, method of mobility, but one that's uh, uh, better in lots and lots of ways. But it's very hard, as you say, to do it in the U.S. because we've built this system of sprawling suburbs that are hard to get around in without a car. They were literally designed for the automobile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, if we see China made a mistake during the past 20 years to follow the European and American suit uh, to uh, repeat kind of the the lesson that these two continents um, have learned uh, just focus on and rely on the uh, manufacturing cars to meet people's mobility needs. But I think to some extent, if we stand uh, uh, at the position of the policymakers of Chinese government, they think this is a kind of necessary step to, to overcome and to become an economic powerhouse because the car manufacturing is a, a really strategic uh, industry to provide a higher mo mobility or higher uh, in, uh, stimulus to the GDP growth. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we also discuss a lot about uh, policy change in India. India will be the next uh, yes. case. Yes, I talked to the, some Indian uh, researchers when they think about the future of transport sector in India, they really have some uh, concern about whether they also rely too much on the the individual vehicles uh, and uh, investments less on uh, public transport and, and also the uh, the traditional like uh, two wheels or three wheels uh, 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 vehicles. I think to some extent, uh, it's the India as a country face similar dilemma that on the one hand they have to use as a vehicle as a tool to develop its economy, become a power. Uh, on the other hand, they have to think about the air pollution and the environment protection and also future more sustainable uh, mobility. So do you think India will <laughs> repeat the lesson or do you think India as a democracy different from China may learn something and also makes relatively more correct dec a decision? Well, I'm afraid that India is becoming less democratic um, as time goes on and that the Modi regime is, um, you know, that he wants to join the, the autocrats of the world, the Trumps, the Xi's, the Bolsonaro's, the Orban's, the Erdogan's, you know, um, the dictators. Um, I think India is incredibly interesting. 
And you're right, it's probably the most important place in the world right now because it's where China was on the energy curve 10 or 15 years ago. And it has tremendous opportunities. I mean, it can enter, uh, the price of renewable energy has dropped so quickly uh, that it's the first big country that has the chance to largely bypass the fossil fuel age if it wants to. But it's also got extraordinarily strong political powers that are connected to the coal industry and so on. If I were India, or if I was a government leader in India or China, I would look around the world and try to figure out which cities and countries are actually the most advanced. And I think I wouldn't look at Chicago or Los Angeles or Phoenix or Houston. I think I'd look at Amsterdam and Copenhagen and places like that that are actually delightful cities where people are happy living, that have high standards of living and robust economies, but that do it with uh, bicycles and subway cars and things. Um, and that's the direction that I would be trying to move my cities. And I think there's possibilities for that, you know. Uh, Indians loved the subway system when they built it in Delhi a few years ago, much of it above ground, kind of monorail system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, we have a lot of experiments around the world uh, in the city level. I think uh, uh, in uh, San Francisco, in other small cities in the west coast of the US, and also in uh, New England, some cities also uh, really uh, have interest and willingness to learn from European counterparts. And those kind of competition uh, of re reducing the uh, footprint of the uh, livelihood, uh, the way of living might be uh, more interesting to, to see. Mm -hmm.